managers are the problem, not the individuals, not the people they're managing. So managers are the problem of, of why we have this issue. And the reason the managers are caught in this dilemma is because no one's trained them how to do it. You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today we're talking about how to optimize your approach to management, how to transition from field, being a sales rep to management, the core values critical to success in the transition, and how to create an environment for success. Now, we all know there are a lot of people that have been promoted up as they have you know, gone through their careers, but management versus execution is often a different skill set. So this is going to be a great conversation to help us. We have on the show today, Ed Epley, a global expert in professional management sales strategy and performance management, also a former principal consultant for the table group. And he's also author of Let's Be Clear, Six Disciplines of Focused Management Pros. Ed, thank you for taking time and welcome to the show. Glad to be with you, Chad. Excited to spend some time with you. Yeah. So before we uh, start the show, we typically ask one off the wall question. So the audience gets a little bit uh, better understanding for you as an individual. And I, I am, uh, I don't know why I've been obsessed with this question lately, but curious to know what you're passionate about that those who know you largely from a professional and work environment may be surprised to learn about. Well, uh, I am a passionate golfer and that's maybe understating it. So I, I love playing the <laughs> golf and, um, I play about 80 times a year. So most people, I, uh, I've, uh, I'm, I rationalize and make excuses for, uh, why I need to be on the golf course and, uh, do that quite well at my age. So that's, <laughs> we just recently in the last six months had our first grandchild. So I'm passionate about that. And, um, have gotten, uh, so much enjoyment from it that I, I, not, uh, I always knew I'd enjoy it. I'm getting where I get the enjoyment from is not where I thought I would. So that was very interesting. And the last thing is I've become uh, late in life interested in fly fishing. And my son got me involved with that. And we have started doing that together. And that's a hoot. I love it. <laughs> so with the grandchildren, I'm curious, what, where was the enjoyment that surprised you? I always thought the enjoyment would be having the, the grandchild and getting to play with him. In this case, Emmett, Emmett uh, is his name. But uh, uh, what I really thrive on is watching our son and daughter-in-law be parents. I, uh. I, I never thought of that as part of the equation. And they have so exceeded our high expectations that we had. for we, we thought and were confident they'd be great parents. But watching them be parents has just been so much fun. Love it. Awesome. Excellent. All right. So for listeners, um, how about a quick overview of the path you took to arrive at where you are today, the progression from young professional to respected coach and mentor? I have always been an entrepreneur. And so I've uh, always found excuses, made excuses to start businesses, even though I didn't call them that. I mean, my first one was a 4-H project that turned into a breeding uh, livestock operation uh, <laughs> at the age of, of 12. Um, so it's it's funny how your DNA, and in some case, you know, you're nurtured in, the, in a direction that lets that happen. But I uh, I started in radio advertising sales, and from there created my first advertising agency, which was my first real business after uh, leaving home. And then um, that led to becoming a manufacturer's rep, 
for one of my clients that got me involved with industrial and distribution or industrial and construction distribution sales. Then I started uh, in the actual um, uh, working for a distributor where I was a salesperson and then became the VP of sales of that organization from which I came to the realization of two real important things. One, I didn't like management. <laughs> I wasn't very good at it. And then the second realization was I loved uh, getting a chance to coach and train and, and work with people. So at age 40, that's when I really found my, I'd, I'd identified my purpose in life and started to pursue it. So that's really the, the genesis. So the last 25 years, uh, 30 years, I've really been focused on what I'm doing today. Uh, and it's funny. I, I would say 40 was for me, the, the turning point too, was the light bulb that goes on. And I don't know, you know, no matter how many times people told me, Hey, you should really take a look at this or you should, you know, be aware of that. I'm one of those hard headed people that has just had to learn. I had to go through the, the ups and downs myself. And it was about at 40, 41 where I realized I wanted to be doing something completely different <laughs> than what I had done the vast majority <laughs> of my career. So, okay. So let's start with an understanding of what is performance management. So I like to set context because because I find that people don't have very similar understandings of what most of us would think of as pretty simple words. Uh, and there are a lot of people out there that you know hang their shingles out and they don't have the track record that you do. So from your perspective, what yeah. is performance management? I try to make these concepts as simple as possible. It's the way my brain works. So for me, performance management is the ability to quantifiably define and set expectations for others and then to hold people accountable for those expectations and provide feedback and coaching informally and formally throughout the year. And that there's a key word in there, accountability. And I'm seeing organizations really struggle with that element of it. So I'd be really interested to dive into this. Why do you see companies, you know, a lot of companies will talk a good game, but I don't see them investing in this area, which is critical for the way the organization moves. Curious what reasons you're seeing or hearing out there of why organizations may recognize the need for it, but may not be investing uh, the type of time, effort, and, and potentially dollars that are necessary to really drive success? Well, um, I have, were you ever in a management role, Chad, in any of your... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was... <laughs> I think much like you, I found that uh, I really didn't enjoy it. <laughs> right. And, and most of us are in it probably for the wrong reasons, and we can talk later about that. But I, my guess is you were never trained about how to set expectations Um with others. I, I think you were given maybe a model, but no one ever trained you to think about, well, what oh, is never. It? Yeah. And, and so I've literally worked with hundreds of organizations, uh, including, you know, global companies, fortune 20 inside the fortune 20 companies, all the way down to five and $10 million a year companies. And so one of the things I know is that well in excess of 90% of all managers have never been trained to do this. So, uh, it's, it's no reason to, to, to question then, well, why don't companies spend any money? It's because the people who are running these companies have never been trained to do it. They count on HR to come up with a system or process, but nobody likes it. Nobody loves <laughs> the systems they have. They all bitch about it right. and say it's no good. Well, that's that's our own fault. So we we tend to tolerate it. What I also think is ironic is that the work that could be done on the front end to really make clear to somebody what success looks like in their job. We're willing to do it when we want to fire them. Uh, okay. Interesting. You, Interesting. you follow that? I mean, yeah, we, we will do the work to quantify the expectations of what we wanted from that person when we want to get rid of them. Why don't we do that when we hire them? 
Yeah, performance improvement plans on the back end are much yeah. easier than than people putting together those expectations up front. Well, and also I think that's that goes to the root of the problem because ultimately managers so often confuse being busy and 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 activities and duties with results. And and ultimately it's the the results that matter, agreed? Agreed. 100%. So, so so because managers make the confusion, managers are the problem, not the individuals, not the people they're managing. So managers are the problem of, of why we have this issue. And the reason the managers are caught in this dilemma is because no one's trained them how to do it. So the, the essence of the issue becomes, uh, do you understand the results that you expect from the activities you normally want your people to perform? And salespeople are probably uh, the easiest people to set quantifiable expectations <laughs> in terms of part of the results, which is the revenue or the, the gross margin dollars that are produced. But oftentimes uh, you have these destructive heroes of salespeople who still get fired, even though they hit the quantifiable metric of the revenue number. But the non the, the uh, qualitative part of the job, which is how do you get along with others and, you know, how do you treat people and are you, are you a team player? Those things typically don't get quantified until you have to fire the destructive hero. Right. Destructive hero. I like that. I like that phrase. That's not one that I, I've heard before, but it makes complete sense. So a lot of times you'll have individuals in an organization that are, you know, lone wolves. So they're off oh, okay. doing what they need to do to hit their number, but aren't concerned about, you know, the impact that's having on others. Or it, you can even have the other side of it. I had to have a conversation with a sales professional not too long ago. They were very excited. They blew out their number by like, two or three million over their yeah. quota. And, yeah. and I had to explain to them that that can also be as destructive as oh, not yeah. hitting your number. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've set a really high bar for expectations of what you're going to do going forward. Yeah. <laughs> um, for, for the VPs of sales and sales managers listening, I would caution, there is a very distinct difference between a destructive hero and then that, that high maintenance high level performance. So I think you can be high maintenance and not be a destructive hero. Right. Yeah. So. And it all depends on, it all depends on the impacts having on the organization and, and sales has a tendency to be, uh, it's very difficult sometimes for organizations to drive a true team uh, culture and environment in a sales organization. They have a tendency to operate like individuals. So it can be a bit of a challenge to put together that consistency without some framework or approach to coach to. Well, and, and you hit the nail on the head, Chad, when you said it, it's very astute when you said that most sales teams aren't teams, they're functioning work groups, but right. they're not, they're not true teams. They're, they're more like uh, track teams, you know, like swim teams, their performance is really a, just a group of individuals and you hope everybody does their best on a given day and you win the meet. Right. Right. Now, as we were prepping for this, you mentioned the five stages of strategic planning, uh, yeah. which is critical for all managers. Would love to know what those five stages are. At the C-suite level, uh, if we're talking about in, at the top of the company, the number one uh, aspect of strategic planning is identifying the ideal customer. That is so often not done or not done well, because that's who you should be building your systems, your processes, and your infrastructure to serve. And it doesn't mean you won't do business with people who aren't your ideal customer, but we're not going to put revenue and resources, time, money, effort, thinking into, into what do we do for these people that don't fit our ideal customer. 
And then the, the, the benefit that that gives to people who are in the sales role is you know where you're supposed to spend your time. You're supposed to spend your time going after these kinds of accounts, not these other kinds of accounts that, that really don't fit the model of who we're about. Uh, so that's step one. Step two is then building organizational buy-in so that it's not just believed at the top, but that you get everybody else to understand that and understand why it's important. From there, you can then, uh, step three is really clarifying the priorities because as you know, as a manager, there's more work to get done than there is time to do it. <laughs> so you have to really say what won't get done, which means you, you understand clearly what has to get done, which step four is then what won't we do? And then step five is really you as the boss have to be fully committed to this. I mean, you can't, you can't be happy about it today. And then when it becomes difficult, want to, want to, question the decisions that were made, you know, 60, 90 days ago. Right. Just because it got hard, let's change yeah. direction. Yeah. <laughs> and so in those stages, how do you work with people to help them set uh, or, or coach people to set expectations and drive that accountability across those stages, not only for themselves, but for their team? Well, the, if you think about once we've identified the ideal customer, assume we got organizational buy-in. Now, when we identify our priorities, the performance management expectations should be built around those priorities. And oftentimes, I think it's, again, it's probably simpler to, to do that for the salespeople than it is for the rest of the organization. And so as a result of that, oftentimes you don't have the priorities synchronized and the performance management conversations are not harmonious with what we really say is most important. So certain people are going left and other people are going right. And if you've ever been in an organization where that has happened, it isn't fun. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's a train wreck. And it, and you'll, you typically will see attrition, right? You'll typically start oh, yeah. to see the attrition happen. And that, and even then sometimes I see managers or leaders who don't understand why people are, are leaving. They can't see well, the forest for the trees. Well, and it's not, it's not the marginal performers who are leaving. Right. It's your, your top performers who will opt out because they're going, this is, this is silly. Why should I spend my time and, you know, um, and, and limit my career being around people who really don't know what to get done? Right. Right. Or an organization that's not investing in helping me get better at driving that type of, of performance management and that accountability. Yeah. Because right? if you're, if, you know, you put them in the middle of a storm, uh, and you don't give them instruction on how to, how to steer the boat when the waves are crashing over the edge and you, you know, you're surprised that the boat sinks. It's, you know, it's like, hello. <laughs> Why am I all wet? <laughs> <laughs> right? right. Why? What happened here? I don't, I don't think I understand. So yeah. when, when you work with these organizations, where across those five stages, where do you see them struggle the most? Most, uh, I probably would put it into a couple of categories. If, you, if let's just round number, a hundred million, fifty million below, somewhere at that that size business, they really struggle saying no to any customer. Especially the smaller the company, the harder it is for them to say we're not going to focus on certain kinds of clients because to survive, they've really made it a habit of doing business with anybody. Right. And, and so they think they're giving up something when they choose not to focus on certain kinds of, of customers, when they say some are more important than others. So that's a real difficult struggle for those mid 50 to hundred million dollar companies and below above that, the companies don't f struggle so much with who the ideal customer it is, is, but it's, the conflicting the priorities that arise from that, because 
you have so much legacy in invested in doing things a certain way. So when you, you know, it's, it's, you can change your strategy in seconds. You can, you can literally decide we're going to do something different and focus on something different, but creating the structure and the systems and the processes that support that strategy is really where the hard part of the work comes. And it's so often, it so often gets derailed because we get held hostage by the talent that we have that forces us to create a structure that's really not the ideal one we should have. And so where you see at the higher levels, uh, larger company sizes, where they struggle is being able to change their structure fast enough to keep up with the strategic intent that they say they have. That's an amazing point. We do a lot of work where we, where we assess organizations and we start with the organizational structure. We're like, what is, you know, what is it that you have going on right now? Is it structured to optimize the processes that, that will drive the behaviors you want yeah. for the, for the optimal return? Yeah. And it's, it's funny. Uh, I shouldn't say funny. It's interesting to me that some of the organizations don't understand the interplay between organizational structure, process development, execution, and then of course the subsequent behaviors that come as a result of that. Yeah. And it's to me, I mean, it becomes a critical element in success as well as not only just setting all of those, those performance metrics, but to, as you said, get to those strategic levels of return. I've come to the conclusion that, you know, late in my career now, and, and I wish I'd have known this 20 years ago, I might, you know, 25 years ago, I might still be in management today. <laughs> that more than half of the problems in most companies are a structural problem. They, they don't they don't necessarily look that way and they they show up as something else symptomatically as something other than a structural issue and structure is how we deploy all of our resources so it's not just people it's time it's finance it's right. brick and mortar and what have you but but something about our structure is probably causing more than half of the problems we have and so we attack the symptom and we play whack-a-mole with it and hit on it and hit on it and hit on it and finally we come to realize oh it's a structural issue and that's think of the time and the energy and the frustration that goes into dealing with these incorrect diagnosed problems Oh, and it's an amazing, I don't want to, it's not a waste of time, but it's a, it's a time sink for sure. Oh, and you yeah. lose all of those productivity cycles, market share. I mean, it, it starts to impact the business down to the fundamentals. Well, in some cases, companies go out of business because they don't True. quick enough. Absolutely. No right. Quick. All right. So let's pivot here and talk and talk culture that's critical for this success because there's, we've talked organizational structure and process behavior. We've talked about performance management, but all of that gets surrounded by, by culture. And as we prepare for this conversation, you mentioned there's four benefits of a strong culture. And I'd love for you just to dive a little bit deeper into that for me. Well, uh, first of all, for me, culture uh, would be a combination of the written and the unwritten rules for behavior. So we start with that as the premise. So there's, there's the written rules that we have, which essentially come from our, um, you know, our behaviors and value statements that we might have. But, but more importantly, it's the employee handbook of the thou shalt not, you know, and, and the majority of the employee handbook is written for the 5% of the employees who need that. <laughs> not written for the masses. So then the, the majority of the culture comes from the unwritten rules, which is really about how does the executive team, how does the leadership, formal leadership of the organization react and respond to the wins and the losses and the successes and the mistakes that they see in the organization. And I've come to the, this conclusion as well, is that the majority of people pay most attention to how you as, as the boss behave when I screw up. Or when I see others, or when you see others screw up. That's really the driving force in the majority of the culture, I think. 
So that's number one. So the, the four things that, that I really think go into creating a strong culture that, that the benefits are that is number one, it makes it much easier for people to behave in a manner consistent with our business model. So if we have the right culture, we've created a path of least resistance that allows people to intuitively, naturally behave that way. And we know when they behave that way, that being in air quotes, that they are supporting the business model that we've chosen. So that's number one. Number two, if we do it well, we make our culture toxic to people who shouldn't be there. And that's a huge win when people will opt out, self-select to not be there quickly when they know, I don't want to be part of this group of people because they're crazy. You know, that's, that's <laughs> if, you have a, if you have the right culture, bad hires will, will go, you know what, I don't even want to come back for a second interview. These people are nuts. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Number three benefit is managers have to spend less time managing people who aren't behaving like they would want because there are going to be fewer people who aren't behaving like they want. And then the last part of this, and maybe just as important as all the others, is you have greater employee satisfaction, greater employee engagement, which immediately translates, I think, into greater external customer satisfaction, loyalty, things of that nature. Which is the name of the game, right? We want, oh, yeah. we, we want the customer loyalty. We want to increase customer lifetime value. It's easier to keep them than it is to get new ones. So we might as well make the most of them when we get them. Well, if people haven't already picked up, I'm a Drucker junkie. People. <laughs> and, um, you know, Drucker said the, the main pursuit of, of the business that the entity is, is always is the creation of, of a customer. You know, if you're not, if you're not creating and finding customers, then what are you doing? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so there, we also mentioned um, values, right? And the yeah. importance of committing to three. So I'm curious if, if we had to commit to three values, what are the three that you would recommend? Oh, I'm not going to do that. Because uh, <laughs> uh, I think they really are different for all organizations, but the, I'm, more impo- I'm, I'm more obsessed about one. Uh, I think you can see behaviors in people. You can't see values. So I'm a, I'm a big fan that we want to articulate the behaviors that we think really disproportionately make us the kind of company that will be different and make it easier for our customers to recognize, oh, when I do business with them, they're different than all the other people that I could deal with in a positive way. So, you know, you, you, there's a number of companies who've, who've really done this, obsessed about it. Disney's obsessed about it. Southwest Air is obsessed about it. Chick-fil-A is obsessed about it. And so they, they have behaviors that really make it clear to people, you got to behave this way if you're going to be one of us. And, but, but they're not choosing those simply because it pleases the executive team. They know that if they, people behave that way, again, it supports the, the, the business model. It literally transforms the business in a meaningful way to be more competitive and to be worthy of more an unfair share of business. That's a better way to say it. I like it. I like it. All right. So let's change direction. Can I add one thing there? Yeah. I, yeah. I need to add If you have too many of these, it becomes too complex for people to understand. And also it makes it more difficult to really find the, the talent that you want. So the fewer, the better, the simpler that is, the easier it's going to be to execute. So forgive me. 
Yeah, no, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I have a tendency, I find in my life to have a tendency to keep things to the rule of three. So if I can keep three things, I can keep them in my mind. I can stay focused on them, whether that's values for the organization, uh, primary performance metrics for teams, yeah, uh, goals yeah. for myself. If I've got three, great. The minute I get into four, five, six, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm getting older. I just have a tendency to forget what the last couple were. <laughs> <laughs> Well, ultimately, what you you come to realize is there's a capacity for people to be able to absorb and to execute. And for the average person, you get beyond two or three, everything gets diluted after that. And then then we've essentially created a a diminishing return that we had good intention, but it sure didn't serve us. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So let's change direction a little bit here. We ask all of our guests two standard questions towards the end of each interview. The first is simply as, as a sought after performance coach and, and mentor that makes you a revenue executive for your own business. And I'm always curious to understand when somebody doesn't have a trusted referral into you, there's no intro from someone that you trust. There's no path where there is a credible relationship in place. How does somebody go about most effectively uh, capturing your attention and earning the right to say 10, 13, 15 minutes on your calendar? (laughs) Well, this, I will tell you, it's a lot harder today at 66 than it would have been at 50. So (laughs) at 66, my patience for, uh, for dealing with people who are not uh, speaking my language is, is pretty minimal. So I'm probably a, a really tough, a tough person to get in front of in that regard. Uh, it, it basically, I think, comes back to I don't want to have to teach someone or educate them about my business. I want them to know, you know, essentially what the challenges are that I face. If they come to me talking about some of those challenges and show that they're astute about what I do and the issues, both positive and negative, that that confront me, I'll engage in an intellectually uh, stimulating conversation with them just because it'll be, I, I enjoy talking with people who understand what the business is about. So when they come to me and say, what are the biggest challenges you face? I don't, I don't want to go through that. <laughs> right. I want them to come to me and say, you know, there's probably, you're probably dealing with this challenge, this challenge, and this challenge, aren't you? And I'll go, yeah. How did you know that? Are you in the business? No, but I've done enough work with people like you that I get that. Right. Yeah. Show them you know them. Right. Show yeah. you know them. It's it's always about them. It's not about the person trying to get in front. You know the the, the salesperson or the person trying to get in front of you. It, should, it always needs to be about the other other individual. Excellent. Last question. We call it our acceleration insight. There was one thing you could tell sales, marketing, or professional services people. One piece of advice that if they listened, you believe would help them hit their targets or crush their goals. What would it be and why? Are, are we talking to the managers? Or are we talking to the salespeople that work for the managers? You can do both. I can do both. Well, if you're the salesperson, uh, you have to become a master of selling methodology, whatever it is. But you got to pick one, and you got to you got to become so good at it that it you do not have to think about what should I do in this instance with when when I'm either on the phone or writing an email or actually in a in a live conversation, you know, face to face with somebody. So I. I own that process to the point that uh, I don't have to worry about whether I can execute it or not. That would be what I would do for the individual salesperson. For the manager, I think it would be you need to you need to really get your head around why do you want to be the manager of these people. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and Pat Lencioni, who I had uh, the good fortune to work with and be around, um, uh, and I'll I'll be with him at, next month at the Unconference for the Table Group. 
has a new book coming out called The Motive. And he's, he's really identified two reasons why people become managers. And uh, I think it would be, would be wise for people to, to think about those. I'm not going to give away the answer. I'll let you seek it out in, in the book. But I think, it's, I think it's really important that you understand the motives behind what's driving you to, be, to want to take on the responsibility to be the manager and leader of others. Yeah. What is, what is the core motivation? A lot of people just take the promotion because, Hey, this sounds like it'll be fun rather than really thinking about what is it, you know, why would you want it? What, what is going to be the, the personal return that you're going to yeah. get out of it? And what are you willing to put into it? What are you willing to and, sacrifice to put into it? And you hit it on, hit on an earlier, Chad, when you, you did it, just talked about the fact that managers get into this role and it is not at all the same set of skills that made them successful as a salesperson. These oh. are totally different skill sets. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's funny because I, there's not a lot of much like with holding people accountable in the performance, performance metrics. There's not a lot of companies that invest in helping those individuals transition from say lower level or field roles into management positions and all of the skills that come with that. It's just, it's, it's interesting to me. It's like, Hey, we're going to push them in the deep end of the pool and see what happens. You betcha. And it's, and it, and again, it's so often it's the other people who are choosing to put this person in a managerial role for sales have never done it. And they really don't under, they think of it as managing of, of, of other people in other jobs. And those are those, that kind of management's not the same as the management of salespeople. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Ed, perfect. Thank you. I can't thank you enough. If the listener's interested in talking more about these topics with you, we're seeking you out. Where do you, where would you like us to send them? Uh, my website is the epleygroup.com and you spell epley e p p l e y so the epleygroup all one word.com and there they can get my book they can take our free assessments about what it uh, means to be a manager and and have the six disciplines of professional management they also can download a number of different blogs and articles i've written about the six disciplines and I'm also on LinkedIn, so they, they can connect with me there. And if you got questions, uh, you can reach me at ed at the epleygroup.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for taking time. It's been great having you on the show. My pleasure, Chad. Hope to do it with you again, okay? All right, everybody, that does it for this episode. Please check us out at b2brevexec.com. Share the episode with friends, family, coworkers. If you like what you're hearing, do us a favor, leave us a review on iTunes. Until next time, we at Value Selling Associates wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.